Section 6 of The Romance of Modern Mechanism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emanuel Zornberg. The Romance of Modern Mechanism by Archibald Williams. Chapter 5 the Pedrail. Have you ever watched carefully a steamroller's action on the road when it is working on newly laid stones? If you have, you noticed that the stones, gravel, etc., in front of the roller moved with a wave-like motion, so that the engine was practically climbing a never-ending hill. No wonder, then, that the mechanism of such a machine needs to be very strong, and its power multiplied by means of suitable gearing. Again, suppose that an iron-tired vehicle, traveling at a rapid pace, meets a large stone. What happens? Either the stone is forced into the ground, or the wheel must rise over it. In either case, there will be a jar to the vehicle and a loss of propulsive power. Do not all cyclists know the fatigue of riding over a bumpy road, fatigue to both muscles and nerves? As regards motors and cycles, the vibration trouble has been largely reduced by the employment of pneumatic tires, which lap over small objects, and when they strike large ones, minimize the shock by their buffer-like nature. Yet there is still a great loss of power, and if pneumatic-tired vehicles suffer, what must happen to the solid, snorting, inelastic traction engine? On hard roads, it rattles and bumps along, pulverizing stones, crushing the surface. When soft ground is encountered, in sink the wheels because their bearing surface must be increased until it is sufficient to carry the engine's weight. But by the time that they are six inches below the surface, there will be a continuous vertical belt of earth six inches deep to be crushed down incessantly by their advance. How much more favorably situated is the railway locomotive or truck? Their wheels touch metal at a point but a fraction of an inch in length. Consequently, there is nothing to hamper their progression. So great is the difference between the rail and the road that experiment has shown that, whereas a pull of from 8 to 10 pounds will move a ton on rails, an equal weight requires attractive force of 50 to 100 pounds on the ordinary turnpike. In order to obviate this great wastage of power, various attempts have been made to provide a road locomotive with means for laying its own track as it proceeds. About 40 years ago, Mr. Boydell constructed a wheel which took its own rail with it, the rails being arranged about the wheel like a hexagon round a circle, so that as the wheel moved it always rested on one of the hexagon's sides, itself flat on the ground. This device had two serious drawbacks. In the first place, the plates made a rattling noise which has been compared to the reports of a Maxim gun. Secondly, though the contrivance acted fairly well on level ground, 
it failed when uneven surfaces were encountered. Thus, if a brick lay across the path, one end of a plate rested on the brick, the other on the ground behind, and the unsupported center had to carry a sudden, severe strain. Furthermore, the plates, being connected at the angles of a hexagon, could not tilt sideways, with the result that breakages were frequent. Of late years, another inventor, Mr. J. B. Diplock, has come forward with an invention which bids fair to revolutionize heavy road traffic. At present, though it has reached a practical stage and undergone many tests satisfactorily, it has not been made absolutely perfect, for the simple reason that no great invention jumps to finality all at once. Are not engineers still improving the locomotive? The pedrail, as it has been named, signifies a rail moving on feet. Mr. Diplock, observing that a horse has for its weight a tractive force much in excess of the traction engine, took a hint from nature and conceived the idea of copying the horse's foot action. The reader must not imagine that here is a return to the abortive and rather ludicrous attempts at a walking locomotive made many years ago, when some engineers considered it proper that a railway engine should be propelled by legs. Mr. Diplock's device not merely propels, but also steps, i.e., selects the spot on the ground which shall be the momentary point at which propulsive force shall be exerted. To make this clearer, consider the action of a wheel. First, we will suppose that the spokes, any number you please, are connected at the outer ends by flat plates. As each angle is passed, the wheel falls flop onto the next plate. The greater the number of the spokes, the less will be each successive jar or step, and consequently the perfect wheel is theoretically one in which the sides have been so much multiplied as to be infinitely short. A horse has practically two wheels, its front legs one, its back legs the other. The shoulder and hip joints form the axles, and the legs the spokes. As the animal pulls, the leg on the ground advances at the shoulder past the vertical position, and the horse would fall forwards were it not for the other leg which has been advanced simultaneously. Each step corresponds to our many-sided wheel falling onto a flat side, and the hammer, hammer, hammer on the hard high road is the horsey counterpart of the metallic rattle. On rough ground, a horse has a great advantage over a wheeled tractor because it can put its feet down on the top of objects of different elevations and still pull. A wheel cannot do this, and, as we have seen, a loss of power results. Our inventor, therefore, created in his pedrail a compromise between the railway smoothness and ease of running and the selective and accommodating powers of a quadruped. We must now plunge into the mechanical details of the pedrail, which is, strictly speaking, a term confined to the wheel alone. 
our illustration will aid the reader to follow the working of the various parts. In a railway, we have A. Sleepers on the ground B. Rails attached to the sleepers C. Wheels rolling over the rails In the ped rail, the order, reckoning upwards, is altered. On the ground is the ped, or movable sleeper carrying wheels, over which a rail attached to the moving vehicle glides continuously. The principle is used by anyone who puts wooden rollers down to help him move heavy furniture about. Of course, the peds cannot be put on the ground and left behind. They must accompany their rollers and rails. We will endeavor to explain, in simple words, how this is effected. To the axles of the locomotive is attached firmly a flat, vertical plate parallel to the sides of the firebox. Pivoted to it, top and bottom, at their centers, are two horizontal rocking arms, and these have their extremities connected by two bow-shaped bars or cams, their convex edges pointing outwards, away from the axle. Powerful springs also join the rocking arms, and tend to keep them in a horizontal position. Thus, we have a powerful frame, which can oscillate up and down at either end. The bottom arm is the rail on which the whole weight of the axle rests. The rotating and moving parts consist of a large, flat, circular case, the sides of which are a few inches apart. Its circumference is pierced by 14 openings, provided with guides to accommodate as many short-siding spokes, which are in no way attached to the main axle. Each spoke is shaped somewhat like a tuning fork. In the V is a roller wheel, and at the tip is a ped, or foot. As the case revolves, the tuning fork spokes pass, as it were, with a leg on each side of the framework referred to above, the wheel of each spoke being the only part which comes into contact with the frame. Strong springs hold the spokes and rollers normally at an equal distance from the wheel's center. It must now be stated that the object of the framework is to thrust the rollers outwards as they approach the ground and slide them below the rail. The side pieces of the frame are, as will be noticed, see figure 3, eccentric, i.e. points on their surfaces are at different distances from the axle center. This is to meet the fact that the distance from the axle to the ground is greater in an oblique direction than it is vertically, and therefore, for three spokes to be carrying the weight at once, two of them must be more extended than the third. So then, a spoke is moved outward by the frame till its roller gets under the rail, and as it passes off it, it gradually slides inwards again. It will be obvious to the reader that, if the peds were attached inflexibly to the ends of their spokes, they would strike the ground at an angle and, of course, be badly strained. Now. Mr. Diplock meant his peds to be as like feet as possible and come down flat. 
He therefore furnished them with ankles, that is, ball and socket joints, so that they could move loosely on their spokes in all directions. And as such a contrivance must be protected from dust and dirt, the inventor produced what has been called a crustacean joint, on account of the resemblance it bears to the overlapping armor plates of a lobster's tail. The plates, which suggest very thin quoits, are made of copper and can be renewed at small cost when badly worn. An elastic spring collar at the top takes up all wear automatically and renders the plates noiseless. This detail cost its inventor much work. The first joint made represented an expenditure of six pounds. But now, thanks to automatic machinery, any number can be turned out at 3s, 6d each. A word about the feet. A wheel has 14 of these. They are 11 inches in diameter at the tread, and sold with rubber in eight segments, with strips of wood between the segments to prevent suction in clay soil. The segments are held together by a malleable cast iron ring around the periphery of the feet and a tightening core at the center. These wearing parts, being separate from the rest of the foot, are easily and cheaply renewed, and repairs can be quickly effected, if necessary, when on the road. The surface in contact with the ground being composed of the three substances, metal, wood, and rubber, which all take a bearing, provides a combination of materials adapted to the best adhesion and wear on any class of road, or even on no road at all. Motive power is transmitted by the machinery to the wheel axle, from that to the casing, from the casing to the sliding spokes. As there are alternately two and three feet simultaneously in contact with the ground, the power of adhesion is very great, much greater than that of an ordinary traction engine. This is what Professor Heel Shaw says in a report on a pedrail tractor. Quote, the weight of the engine is spread over no less than 12 feet, each one of which presses upon the ground with an area immensely greater, probably as much as ten times greater, than that of all the wheels of an ordinary traction engine taken together on a hard road. Upon a soft road, all comparison between wheels and the action of these feet ceases. The contact of each of the feet of the pedrail is absolutely free from all slipping action, and attains the absolute ideal of working, being merely placed in position without sliding to take up the load, and then lifted up again without any sliding to be carried to a new position on the road. End quote. It is necessary that the feet should come down flat on the ground. If they struck it at all edgeways, they would sprain their ankles, otherwise probably break off at the ball joint. Mechanism was, therefore, introduced by which the feet would be turned over as they approached the ground, and be held at the proper angle ready for the step. Without the aid of a special diagram, it would be difficult to explain in detail 
how this is managed. And it must suffice to say that the chief feature is a friction clutch worked by the roller of the foot's spoke. To the onlooker, the manner in which the pedrail crawls over obstacles is almost weird. The writer was shown a small working model of a pedrail propelled along a board covered with bits of cork, wood, etc. The axle of the wheel scarcely moved upwards at all, and had he not actually seen the obstacles, he would have been inclined to doubt their existence. An ordinary wheel of equal diameter took the obstructions with a series of bumps and bounds that made the contrast very striking. An extreme instance of the pedrail's capacity would be afforded by the ascent of a flight of steps, see figure 4. In such a case, the three peds carrying the weight of an axle would not be on the same level. That makes no difference because the frame merely tilts on its top and bottom pivots. The front of the rail rising to a higher level than the back end and the back spokes being projected by the rail much further than those in front so that the engine is simply levered over its rollers up an inclined plane. Similarly, in descending, the front spokes are thrust out the furthest and the reverse action takes place. With so many moving parts, everything must be well lubricated or the wear would soon become serious. The feet are kept properly greased by being filled with a mixture of black lead and grease of suitable quality, which requires renewal at long intervals only. The sliding spokes, rollers, and friction clutches are all lubricated from one central oil chamber through a beautiful system of oil tubes, which provides a circulation of the oil throughout all the moving parts. The central oil chamber is filled from one orifice and holds a sufficient supply of oil for a long journey. We may now turn for a moment from the pedrail itself to the vehicles to which it is attached. Here, again, we are met by novelties, for in his engines, Mr. Diplock has so arranged matters that not only can both front and back pairs of wheels be used as drivers, but both also take part in the steering. As may be imagined, many difficulties had to be surmounted before this innovation was complete. But that it was worthwhile is evident from the small space in which a double steering tractor can turn, thanks to both its axles being movable, and from the increased power. Another important feature must also be noticed, viz. the axles can both tip vertically so that when the front left wheel is higher than its fellow, the left back wheel may be lower than the right back wheel. In short, flexibility and power are the ideals which Mr. Diplock has striven to reach. How far he has been successful may be gathered from the reports of experts. Professor Heel Shaw, FRS, says, quote, The pedrail constitutes, in my belief, the successful solution of a walking machine which, whilst obviating the chief objections to the ordinary wheel running upon the road, can be made to travel anywhere where an ordinary wheel can go.
and in many places where it cannot. At the same time, it has the mechanical advantages which have made the railway system such a phenomenal success. It constitutes, in my belief, the solution of one of the most difficult mechanical problems, and deserves to be considered as an invention quite apart from any particular means by which it is actuated, whether it is placed upon a self-propelled carriage or a vehicle drawn by any agency, mechanical or otherwise. The way in which all four wheels are driven simultaneously so as to give the maximum pulling effect by means of elastic connection is in itself sufficient to mark the engine as a most valuable departure from common practice. Hitherto, this driving of four wheels has never been successfully achieved, partly because of the difficulty of turning the steering wheels, and partly because, until the present invention of Mr. Diplock, the front and hind wheels would act against each other, a defect at first experienced and overcome by the inventor in his first engine. End quote. On January 8, 1902, Mr. Diplock tried an engine fitted with two ordinary wheels behind and two pedrails in front. The authority quoted above was present at the trials, and his opinion will therefore be interesting. Quote, the points which struck me immediately were, one, the marvelous ease with which it started into action, two, the little noise with which it worked. Another thing which I noticed was the difference in the behavior of the feet and wheels. The feet did not in any way seem to affect the surface of the road, throwing down large stones the size of the fist into their path, the feet simply set themselves to an angle in passing over the stones, and did not crush them, whereas the wheel coming after invariably crushed the stones and, moreover, distorted the road surface. Coming to the top of the hill, I made the pedrail walk first over three-inch planks, then six-inch, and finally over a nine-inch bulk. One could scarcely believe, on witnessing these experiments, that the whole structure was not permanently distorted and strained, whereas it was evidently within the limits of play allowed by the mechanism. As a proof of this, the diplock engine walked down to the works, and I then witnessed its ascent of a lane, beside the engineering works, which had ruts eight or ten inches deep, and was a steep slope. This lane was composed in places of the softest mud, and whereas the wheels squeezed out the ground in all directions, the feet of the pedrails set themselves at the angles of the rut where it was hard, or walked through the soft and yielding mud without making the slightest disturbance of the surrounding ground. I came away from that trial with the firm conviction that I had seen what I believed to be the dawn of a new era in mechanical transport. End quote. Mr. Diplock does not regard the pedrail as an end in itself so much as a means to an end, viz. the development of road-borne traffic. For very long distances, which must be covered in a minimum of time, 
the railway will hold its own. But there is a growing feeling that unless the railways can be fed by subsidiary methods of transport more effectively than at present, and unless remote county districts, whither it would not pay to carry even a light railway, are brought into closer touch with the busier parts, our communications cannot be considered satisfactory. And we are not getting the best value out of our roads. For many classes of goods, cheapness of transportation is of more importance than speed. Witness the fact that coal is so often sent by canal rather than by rail. Here, then, is the chance for the pedrail tractor and its long train of vehicles fitted with pedrail wheels, which will tend to improve the road surfaces they travel over. Mr. Diplock sets out in his interesting book A New System of Heavy Goods Transport on Common Roads, a scheme for collecting goods from branch routes onto main routes, where a number of cars will be coupled up and towed by powerful tractors. With ordinary four-wheeled trucks, it is difficult to take a number round a sharp corner, since each truck describes a more sudden circle than its predecessor, the last often endeavoring to climb the pavement. Four-wheeled would therefore be replaced by two-wheeled trucks, provided with special couplings to prevent the cars tilting while allowing them to turn. Cars so connected would follow the same track round a curve. The body of the car would be removable and of a standard size. It could be attached to a simple horse frame for transport into the fields. There, the farmer would load his produce, and when the body was full, it would be returned to the road, picked up by a crane attached to the tractor, swung onto its carriage and wheels, and taken away to join the other cars. By making the bodies of such dimensions as to fit three into an ordinary railway truck, they could be entrained easily. On reaching their destination, another tractor would lift them out, fit them to wheels, and trundle them off to the consumer. By this method, there would be no breaking bulk of goods required from the time it was first loaded till it was exposed in the market for sale. These things are, of course, in the future. Of more present importance is the fact that the War Office has from the first taken great interest in the new invention, which promises to be of value for military transport over ground either rough or boggy. Trials have been made by the authorities with encouraging results. That daring writer, Mr. H. G. Wells, has in his Land Ironclads pictured the Pedrail taking an offensive part in warfare. Huge steel-plated forts mounted on Pedrails and full of heavy artillery and machine guns sweep slowly across the country towards where the enemy has entrenched himself. The forts are impervious, alike to shell and bullet. But as they cross ditch or hillock, in their gigantic stride, their artillery works havoc among their opponents, who are finally forced to an unconditional surrender. Even if the pedrail is not made to carry weapons of destruction, we can, 
after our experiences with horse flesh in the Boer War, understand how important it may become for commissariat purposes. The feats which it has already performed mark it as just the locomotive to tackle the rough country in which baggage trains often find themselves. To conclude with a more peaceful use for it, when fresh country is opened up, years must often pass before a proper high road can be made. Yet there is great need of an organized system of transport, whether ordinary traction engines or carts, even horses, could scarcely penetrate the pedrail tractor thanks to its big flat feet which give it, as someone has remarked, the appearance of, quote, a cross between a traction engine and an elephant, end quote, will be able to push its way at the forefront of advancing civilization. At home, we shall have good reason to welcome the pedrail if it frees us from those terrible corrugated tracks so dreaded by the cyclist, and to bless it if it actually beats our roads down into a greater smoothness than they now can boast. End of section 6